Hey y'all, welcome to Holy Coitus, a community of hosts, H-E-A-U-X. We are humans who engage in consensual coitus, are kind to ourselves and partners, creative, fully embodied, unapologetic, powerful, and free. My mission is to encourage everybody and everyone to claim or reclaim their sexual agency and voice, regardless of what parts you were born with or changed, where you live, what you did in the past, what you learned in the past, what you plan to do in the future, whether you've had zero sex partners or countless a week, your host story is welcome here. You are welcome here. Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Tanea, and this is my podcast, Holy Coitus. I am so glad that you found me in my little corner of the world on the internet and on the podcast airwaves. Um, Today's hope host story her name is tia and she's wonderful you can support her work at instagram or on the instagram at hell mystery co and that's h-e-l-m-i-s-t-r-y-c-o um also you can click the thingy at the bottom of this podcast episode or in my website either one is fine and you'll be able to find her work she is a pansexual agnostic and autistic human being and she is a bipoc coach for um folks who are folks and fans who are looking to um increase their pleasure and also figure out how to um learn to trust themselves in daily decisions both with their bodies and also in regular life uh her story is great and i can't wait for you to hear it in the meantime y'all please support my work find it share uh it with other people um my website and uh instagram is <coughs> Holy Coitus, and that's A-T-A-U-X-O-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S, and that is on Instagram and also on the internet. Buy a t-shirt, like this, subscribe to it, write a comment, uh, give a five-star review. You know the deal, y'all. And also, without further ado, here's my conversation with Tia. Enjoy. Okay, everyone, welcome to my podcast. My name is Jenea, and I have another special guest for you today. I am totally in love, and I can't wait for you to hear her host story. Uh, welcome. What is your name, and what's your story? Hi, I am Tia Jones, and I am a self-trust coach. I specifically work with um, BIPOC women in films who are cycle breakers, so they've endured some kind of abuse, and we work on how to just improve their self-compassion and self-trust on their journey. Oh, yes. Absolutely. So I ask people this um, question, um, every person. So, like, who taught you about sex in your body? And also, like, what are some of those things that you learned, like the first lessons? Um, So I will start off by saying, since I am myself a child abuse survivor, Mm. a lot of my childhood memories are gone. They've been completely blacked out. Um, so I don't remember quite a lot from my childhood, but what I do remember is one, no one taught me about sex. Um, it was very much everything within the Christian context of sex is bad unless you're married. Um, no one really taught me about my body except for or that it was an instrument that could cause a man to fall. Um, and so I definitely grew up just feeling a lot of shame about sex and about my body and the way it looked and some of the feelings I had. Um, and no, like even asking questions about it, nobody would answer any questions. It was just kind of like, 
point to your Bible and you figure it out. And I will say, you know, growing up with parents who could not be bothered to actually parent me outside of, you know, the abuse that I suffered, which was needed parenting, um, they could not be bothered at all <laughs> to mm-hmm. talk to me about anything, not even like my cycle. And I started hella young, like nine years old Ooh. and nobody, nobody talked to me about, about anything. I thought I was dying. Like, mm-hmm. why am I bleeding? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was, um, uh, definitely a process of everything that I learned was about shame and it has been a lifelong process even at 36 to, to undo that my god I, I it grieves me just because of my own journey with um, shame and church and sexuality just how those are all connected so I'm curious about um, you mentioned that you are a child abuse survivor um Mm-hmm. And let's talk about like the the connection that you have to your parents and how that informed your sexuality um, at the beginning stages. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a child abuse survivor who was also religiously abused. So very much of the the shame and things that I was hearing from the pulpit about my body and stuff, I was also hearing at home. So it was really just. What I heard on in the from the pulpit on Saturday or Sunday was a reinforcement of everything that my parents had taught me. Um, I do remember at a very young age that I was very heavily attracted to girls first. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I was attracted to boys, but it was just very much a like, oh, but girls like really like <laughs> attracted me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, but having those strict religious parents, where it was like I knew that I could not explore that part of myself because they had already made it clear that at homosexuality, any kind of queerness was a sin mm. and that if I wanted to live under their roof, I needed to be who they wanted me to be. Mm. And so that context really just informed so many decisions about who I was and how I expressed myself because I had that ever-present fear of if I veer from the script that my parents had for me about who I was, about even who I was attracted to, Mm. you know, it was talked about me getting married to a man and having grandkids, you know, that heteronormativity is Mm. heavy, especially in like church spaces. And so I knew that if I veered, you know, I would not be able to stay at home. I wouldn't be able to continue to to live with my parents. And so I am, I, very much adopted at heteronormativity and it wasn't until after I went no contact with them so you know I got to a point in my life where I was like if having my parents in my life is making me feel like I trigger warning don't want to live Mm -hmm. then what's the point like what's the point of even having them around and it's a much longer story but I'll just say you know 2013 I was about two months postpartum with my second and there was just a bunch of shit that went down that it was just like and I'm done we're done here Mm -hmm. you know that honor your mother and father is real heavy in Mm -hmm. church but I just couldn't do it Mm -hmm. I just couldn't especially as they were continuing to harm me and making it very very clear that they were going to harm my children um so yeah that's when I was just kind of like all right now let's explore now that I don't have them over me, overshadowing what it is that I believe about myself. And that's really when my self-trust work started, where it was like, okay, 
now that I don't have to be who they want me to be to gain their attention and affection, but who am I? Mm. You know? And so that's what, what started it all. Um, and that has been an amazing and also scary question. Oh, yes. The answer to. That is absolutely terrifying. I'm like, so you asked your, yourself the question of, or that you started down the journey of self-trust. So at that point of your transition between terrible childhood and cutting the parents off, and what were some of the other questions you asked yourself? Um, not necessarily connected to your sexuality, but as you were redefining yourself, like what, what else did you ask? Oh, yeah. So that everything kind of fell into place then because... I was also going through, you know, around that time, maybe a year later, my son's autism diagnosis process. And so Mm -hmm. just coming to that, like, okay, who am I? Am I queer? Am I also neurodiverse? Um, But it it very quickly became not who am I, but am I willing to stop being who other people need me to be for their validation and Mm -hmm. and acceptance? Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like that, that identity crisis that kind of happens when you are a trauma survivor and you choose your healing, it's not necessarily an identity crisis. It's just that we have been so conditioned to prioritize external self-awareness. So what other people think about us, what other people think about, you know, our values, our beliefs, our worthiness. And we're starting to make that turn towards the internal self-awareness of what do we think about who we are and what our values are and what our worthiness is. And so that's what kind of causes the identity crisis because Mm -hmm. it's like, I've been who everybody else wanted me to be for so long in my life. Now I'm trying to be who I want to be. And it's like, oh shit, can I do this? Like, can Mm -hmm. I survive without external validation? Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, yes I can. Yes, you can. Yes, we all can. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So let's go back to um, the growing up time. Um, so you grew up in church. Can you describe like what the overall church experience was like or the religious teaching was like? Like where were you on the yeah. spectrum of, of this? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a black Baptist church. Um, it was very much as far as pleasure was concerned and, and not even just pleasure, but in general where you are not to trust yourself because who you are is inherently bad and Mm. evil and your flesh is, you know, i.e. your humanity Mm. is what will make you be doomed to hell. And that that Mm. is the thing who you inherently are. Your humanity is the thing that is in conflict with who God is trying to make you to be. Mm. And so I grew up just completely not trusting myself in any area whatsoever, because I always had that fear of, but if I trust myself, since I'm human, I'm going to make myself be doomed to hell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hell is, um, it's a scary place. And so many people, like, we're all threatened with this idea that, um, that our, our essence will make us go there. It's uh, problematic for sure. Mm. So problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was on the straight and narrow for like a hundred thousand years and that's why I'm in my hoe phase now. So like, um, (laughs) your like, people around you when you were in the church, what were they doing with 
their bodies and did you do those things as well or like were you on the straight and narrow like what was happening I was not okay. So a lot of the the girls that I hung out with in church were sexually active very young because you know go figure telling people that you can't do this thing makes it that much more alluring. Mm. And so I was not like the first in my friend group to lose my virginity. I lost mm. my virginity at like fifteen, and I remember like being so furious with myself mm. <laughs> just being like now we're going to hell oh mm. no and the fear of like telling my parents and I went through a whole like do I even tell them but because that you know honor your mother and father mm. was so strong and that you know oh the parent-child relationship mimics the god-child relationship mm. it was just like a whole thing and so I was not the most adventurous of my friend group. Like, I tried very much to be on the straight and narrow because I was such a people pleaser. But being a people pleaser is what backfired, right? Mm -hmm. So here I am. I've been taught by my abusive parents that what other people think of me is what matters most. Mm -hmm. And that pleasing and making other people happy above all else was my purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So you release a young girl like that who then also has absolutely no sexual education into the world. And so it became very easy for a young boy who would give me attention, which I wasn't getting at home, Mm. to then make it seem as though the way to make him happy was Mm. to have sex with him. Mm. Oh, but my parents are saying that I need to make other people happy. But then there's also that piece of like, but I should wait until I'm married. And it just became a conundrum of like, then what do I do? Mm-hmm. And it became, I, you know, lost my virginity at 15. And just so much, so much shame at that point. But it definitely like set me off on the course of like, I haven't had a ton of sexual partners, but that was, I definitely continued to have sex. For sure. Um, until I was in my like mid 20s. And decided, like, I was going to be more dedicated to my relationship with God. And be set, right? Oh, my gosh. It's it's hard to say with the streets. It's hard to say with the streets now. But, yeah, I'm going to be more more dedicated to my relationship with God. And I am going to try to, even though I am no longer a virgin, I'm going to try to redeem myself mm-hmm. and be celibate until I'm married, which that went on for like two years, but only because I was in grad school at the time mm-hmm. and I wasn't actively dating anybody because I didn't have the free time. Like That was my story. Being, mm-hmm. Yeah, being in grad school. So it wasn't even necessarily that I was actively abstaining. I just didn't have time for the opportunity you know what I mean right yeah people are always asking me they're like because I I earned my doctor degree when I was 26 I was baby and like um people are like how did you do that I was like because I wasn't having sex I had nothing else to do with my day besides write papers (laughs) that was it and I didn't have I didn't have the opportunity because I was I remember that uh, this one dude his name is uh it doesn't matter but like um he messages me every like year or two or so and he's like I'm still in love with you blah blah whatever and um he was I was young on the university and he was a student but our ages were so close and but I couldn't date a student because he was a student but also like he was handsome and fancy I had muscles and stuff 
And like, um, the, the grad school part, it ruined everything for me. It really did. <laughs> Golly. I could have been a host so much earlier. It's not fun. Um, it's really I was not. very unhappy because I realized very quickly that the only reason why I was in grad school was because my parents wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, I was on a lifelong pursuit of, of gaining their earning their love and attention, I would do whatever was necessary. Um, So it became very clear, especially after getting my undergrad degree in chemistry, that like they were like, you need to be some kind of doctor. So you either need to go to med school or you need to go to grad school. Um, And so grad school it was, I was in a PhD program. And two years in, I reconnected with a guy that I had a crush on in high school. who, like, we didn't date because I had dated his best friend in high school, yeah. and I wasn't that kind of, you see my air quotes, I wasn't that <laughs> kind of girl. And so, <laughs> yeah. so, I was like, okay, I couldn't pursue anything in high school, and, and we happened to reconnect, and yeah, he was, like, four hours away from me, and he, like, right after we reconnected, drove up to see me, and there went, you know, my my two-year pursuit <laughs> of celibacy. <laughs> it showed me very quickly, like, it was just because I didn't have the opportunity. Like, right. I am still very much interested in mm. having sex, you know mm. what I mean? Right. So, yeah. And then I, like, a couple months later, ended up pregnant, and it was what? like, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to... PhD anyway, but this gives me like an amazing excuse to not do it. Yeah. To just be like, oh, I'm done. You know, I'm going to go get a stable job since I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And blah, blah, blah. Of course, my parents play in town. Like, the only reason why you're not a doctor is because and it's like, yeah, okay. nah. They weren't trying to hear me when I said I wasn't interested in doing that anymore anyway because mm-hmm. my my desires didn't matter to them. Right. And so, yeah, that became a whole thing. Oh, and now I'm pregnant and I'm done. Bye. <laughs> I love it. How did your, what were your, so like, it seems to me like you had like a sandwich, like you were sexually active and then not, and then sexually active again. So like, how did your view of self like change through that time? Like, did you go, did you revert back to thoughts or did you have new thoughts after the dude in the PhD program? Like what happened? Not really. So like, I remember in the beginning feeling like a ton of shame, but like it felt really good. And so, and it kind of, it pissed my parents off too. And so mm-hmm. it was like, you know, win-win at, at that stage. And then going to, you know, that two year period of being celibate, it was like, well, you know, I want, I want to be holy. I want to be holier mm-hmm. and work on my relationship with God. So, so he'll send me a husband. Mm. and just being like okay here I am being celibate and like yeah I'm in grad school but I'm going making time to go to church like almost every Sunday and I'm not meeting nobody God what's happening you know what I mean and then like reconnecting with my now husband and we will have been married 10 years in July and being like thank you and then being like oh man I really liked him and going through this whole thing because he wasn't a Christian of like is this a test like is he who God has sent to test me before you know what I mean so it was still everything was still layered in lack of self-trust I did not trust myself at any stage of the sandwich like Mm -hmm. even when I was celibate it was just kind of like okay well deep down I know I didn't have the opportunity and that's why it wasn't working out and then also, like, thinking, but because I am not a virgin, like, why would 
already def- def- deflowered myself and defiled myself. And so it was just a shit ton of like self-loathing and self-distrust. Mm-hmm. So that, that did not, I would be honest and say that feeling really didn't change until I went no contact with my parents. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that was the, the thing that turned the tide, not even getting married. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, because I still had that feeling of like, I know I'm getting married now, but I had a baby before I was married Mm. and I wasn't a virgin when I got married. So still there was a shit ton of shame there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, there, there were no new thoughts for a while. It was very much from the time I was a kid until the time I was like 30 that I was like, I am a mess. I am inherently bad and evil, not worthy of pleasure, not worthy of, you know, not worthy in general. Mm. And I couldn't trust myself, which (sighs) just fucking sucks. It really does. Okay, I have another question. So you talked about um, uh, being, like, doing what you were supposed to do. So, like, during the celibate time, you talked about how, Mm. like, you were doing your part and you were going Mm -hmm. to church but you still couldn't find nobody in church. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that piece? Because it is one of my soapboxes, but I want to hear what you have to say first. Because statistically, it's a scam, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> <So> like... <laughs> yes, it is a scam. And I was just like, so I was celibate and I was going to church, but the guys that I connected with at church was just trying to hit. And mm-hmm. I was just like, but I'm celibate. Like, why in this time that I'm trying to be celibate and I'm trying to get close to God and I'm trying to strengthen my relationship with God, like, all the dudes that I meet in in church are just interested in sex. Like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to get married. I'm trying to marry somebody. Like, mm-hmm. where, where my husband at? Like, I'm mm-hmm. not trying to have sex with anybody. And that was the, the conundrum that I was in, which is like, okay, I met a couple guys, but I didn't really know them. Like, and my aversion, like, it's really hard for me to get to know somebody. I'll just say it that way. Just mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm autistic. I have a lot of quirks. But then I'm also an abuse survivor. So I am not very trusting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I am always thinking about ulterior motives and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so some guys, like, weren't even necessarily communicating that they just wanted to hit. But it would just be very clear, like, they weren't looking for something long term. They weren't mm-hmm. looking for a relationship. Um, and so after like one or two dudes at church, I was just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested Mm. in that whatsoever. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then like church is such a misogynistic fucking place. Like there were some guys who I would go to the whole young adult ministry thing and and we would talk about like why we're here and stuff. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm in the area because I'm in this PhD program and like just how much people dudes balk at that of like oh you're getting a phd oh you're too i can't deal with the smart girls they're Mm -hmm. they're too resistant and it's just like (sighs) i just remember feeling so like hopeless (laughs) like Mm -hmm. okay i'm trying not to have sex so far the two dudes I've, i've seen at church are only interested in sex which was a turn off and then it's like i'm here to get a phd but that apparently is a red flag for some dudes because i'm too smart like mm-hmm. i just it was too much it really is dudes don't do well with smart people <laughs> like, that's what i've learned like, i don't even tell people my one of like 
so I do have a doctor degree and there's this one dude, his name is, uh, uh, his name is favorite dick. That's his name. And so, and, uh, we've been, uh, uh, he, he shows up every so often. And, um, and this one time, you know, he, he is not smart, like not. And I just, and he's on my, he was my first one on my list of, um, he, my list is called, um, shut up and take your pants off. And so he was the first one on this list. And I remember this one time he was like, yeah, so did you go to school? And I was like, yeah. And then he was like, so you went to college? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, what'd you study? And I was like, which degree you want to talk about? Bachelor's, master's, doctorate? Like, you want to talk about my research? And I was like, yeah, I graduated. Just just don't worry about it. It's not, that's not why you're here. Because <laughs> they don't do well. They do not do well. And yeah. oh, it's such a pity. God bless them. Okay. And then also throw in that layer of like the inherent distrust of science within a lot of Christian communities and mm. hearing that like my undergrad degree was in chemistry and I was going to get my PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry. It was very much like, oh. Are you a believer? Do you believe in God? Because oh. I don't believe in science. And it's just like, oh, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have this debate every time I meet somebody in the church. Oh, God. It's so hard. Um, so I'm also curious. Did that time, um, you did say that you grew up in Black Baptist Church. Did you stay in Black mm-hmm. Baptist Church this whole time? Um, yes. Okay. I stayed in, in a, a Black Baptist Church for most of my life up until my son got his autism diagnosis because mm-hmm. a lot of the black churches that we had gone to did not have like a program or even really the fun well the funds that's funny that I would say it that way mm-hmm. they did not prioritize special needs kids mm-hmm. or special needs individuals in general and it just we had noticed that you know he was struggling in um children's church it was really loud and and all of that and so we were just kind of like uh we need to find a new church coupled with the fact that um the time that I went no contact my parents and I all went to the same church Mm. and it just they had you know became high-ranking and leading ministries and stuff like that and it just became very clear that if I wasn't going to allow my parents to be in my life, we weren't going to be welcome at that church. Okay. So we knew we needed to find a new one. Okay. okay. Last question about the church thing. Uh, I think. Okay. Um, so the messages that um, in in the teaching between men and women were they the same connected to sexuality? Were they different? Like. What were they telling? Were they were they supporting the guys just trying to hit, and then they would like, like were they saying, okay, well, it's good for you, the dudes, to do that? Like, what were they? What were they teaching? There was yes, there was very much a favoritism in the the male point of view. I mean, not that they talked about it much. I feel like what I experienced, and maybe it's because you know I am a woman. What I experienced most in those was the shaming the calling out of girls and women at church. Your short, your skirt is too short. You're going to distract a man. It was very much a, a environment and scenario where even if a dude did mess up, it was the girl's fault. 
So, like, even if, you know, a girl got pregnant out of wedlock, being able, her basically being ostracized and and asked to leave the church, but then nothing happened to the dude. Mm -hmm. So, even if they didn't come right out and say, like, oh, you know, it's her fault that he impregnated her, which is bullshit. Like, the way that they would respond to situations like that reinforced that notion. Mm -hmm. So, it was very much, you know, a woman's body is for a man's pleasure, but only through marriage, only through marriage, wink, unless you're a guy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because I very much, I knew people who, like, had sex in the church, and it was mm-hmm. just, like, like in the physical building of the church. Mm-hmm. And, like, only the girl got in trouble. <laughs> Not the dude. Okay. Because she seduced him. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, I, I mean, I spoke earlier about how just misogynistic the church is, because women are still being blamed for men's poor behavior Mm -hmm. and so yeah that's that's basically what i internalized that my body was not mine it was only an instrument that could cause a man to fall my Mm -hmm. pleasure was not important i was really just created for the pleasure of a man Mm -hmm. and so that is how i conducted myself up until i started my self-trust journey and then really once i started deconstructing from christianity oh my goodness um can you talk about like you said um and i wanted to make sure that we covered this before we get into more of the christianity pre-culture piece so like with the abusive parents and then you also talked about how they were telling you one thing but then they they were not following their own rules when it came to sexuality um, I think, did you say that there was an adultery or some sort of yes, side, yes, side chick? Absolutely. Or... So since I was parentified, I grew up knowing way too much about my parents' marriage. Like there's a, a difference between openly communicating with your kids and showing, you know, that marriage isn't perfect, showing that, you know, people aren't perfect and mistakes are made and blah, blah, blah. But, but it very much became a my parents regularly shit-talked each other directly to me, their their young child, at the mm-hmm. point, at that point, and it was just like, this is not healthy. Um, even though I didn't realize it at the moment, I just thought, you know, as a kid, what was happening was what was happening for everybody. And it really wasn't until I was an adult that I realized I wasn't the case. But yes, so, you know, my mom, I remember very vividly coming up to me, and I was maybe... 10, 11, again, my my childhood memories are very fuzzy, so I have a hard time understanding which period of childhood things mm-hmm. happened. Um, but yeah, my mom coming up to me and being like, you know, your dad had an affair. And me being like, one, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so her like explaining that like he was with, using my, my quotes again, he was with someone else. Because, again, we didn't really talk about sex. Mm. And so I didn't know what I'm just thinking, like, oh, he has a girlfriend. Like, it wasn't brought up as they had sex or anything Mm. like that. It was just kind of like, your dad had an affair. And I didn't understand the context of that at that age. Mm. Um, Yeah, so she shared things. He shared things. Um... And it was just very much grooming and very much things that they didn't understand put me in the position to be abused by other people. Either they didn't understand or they didn't care. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the thing about grooming is, like, when you have kids with limited 
um, inhibitions and very trusting of any kind of adult, like that is used against them, not just by their parents, but by other people. Right. And there, you know, was sexual harassment and stuff in the churches that I grew up in by pastors to me that I didn't understand was an issue. Right. Like I just thought that that's how men were allowed to talk to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't taught about these things since I was abused at home. Right, right, right. Oh, man. Uh, One more thing. So can you tell us what does parentified mean? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So parentification is when um, a child is basically treated as more mature and Mm -hmm. presented with, whether it's communication or, you know, themes, whether it's like movies and stuff like that, on a consistent basis of Mm -hmm. things that are way too mature for the child to be experiencing at that point in time. So, like, the fact that my parents routinely used me as a child therapist is parentification. Got it. Or, like, if someone is in a scenario where their parents are alcoholics and so they're, as a child, being faced with having to run the household Mm. and, you know, make meals and look out for younger siblings, parent younger siblings, that's parentification. Got it. Oh, goodness, that is so problematic. Okay. Um, can you talk about the no going no contact and what you reclaimed at that time? Yeah, so going no contact was very hard. Um, unfortunately, as a Black person, um, two things are heralded, heralded, and that's family and Christianity. Yeah. And um, I walked away from one before I walked away from the other. And so for me, like, I was always inundated with messages that my parents were allowed to treat me however they wanted to treat me because I was their child and they were the God in the situation. And I was to honor them or God would kill me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was always that undercurrent of, well, if you... If you're not listening to your parents, you're not just angering your parents, you're angering God. Mm-hmm. If you disrespect your parents, you're not just disrespecting your parents, you're disrespecting God. And so it really, um, it really fucked with me. And it was something that I didn't realize the full weight of my childhood trauma until I had my first. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly sitting in the hospital room the day I had my son holding his little body because he was premature he was four weeks premature so he was he was tiny he was on like six five or six pounds and looking at him and just thinking I could never say or do the things to him that were said and done to me by the people who were supposed to love me it's like for the longest I rationalized that my because my mom was my main abuser I rationalized that my mom treated me that way um, and that I just didn't understand because I wasn't a mom yet. Like, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't understand that she was treating me that way, maybe out of some kind of form of love, just because I couldn't understand motherhood. Mm-hmm. And here I was the first day of, like, having my child outside of my body. And just being like, oh, shit, no, that's not motherhood. That's just how she treated me. Like, I was abused. Mm-hmm. And, um... So that really kicked kicked off like something's wrong here because I I had inklings that something was wrong, but that's when it really fully came into focus that oh no I've been abused. This is not a motherhood thing. This is an abuse thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried to stick it out, but like I said, my my parents made it very clear that. They 
all that bullshit, which I, I classify as, as physical abuse. Mm. Um, and so I, I tried to like hang in there. And when my son was like one and a half, I got pregnant with my oldest daughter. Mm. And my parents were like, specifically my mom was like, oh, just wait until your daughter gets here. You'll love her more than you love your son. I know I will. Absolutely. And um, then I realized, like, she very much intended to create that golden child scapegoat dynamic that happens in a lot of families where abuse is taking place, where the golden child is the one who can do no wrong, and the scapegoat is the one who does everything wrong in that Mm -hmm. person's eyes. And so, um, yeah, she was basically saying right then and there she was going to love my daughter more than she loved my son Mm -hmm. and that she was going to make my son a scapegoat. And Mm -hmm. I just had a decision between that and, like, how they treated my husband. Oh, I'd be here all day if I really talked about, like, all this shit that I've been through. And so um, 2013... Uh, the turning point was, I'll share a little bit of this story at least. Um, I was, I had just had my baby. She was like two months old, two-ish months old at the time. And I had family members who were coming in town for, there was something going on. They were off of college and so they were coming in town. And there was going to be this big family dinner, but my husband wasn't feeling well. And so I was like, I mean, we can't make it. My husband's not feeling well. You know, I'm still fresh postpartum. Like, I'm not going to come with two small kids by myself because I knew, like, my mom was baby hog, and I just did not have the energy for all that. And so we didn't go. Well, later that night, I am up feeding my daughter. It's like 1 a.m., and I'm scrolling Facebook, and I scroll past a picture that looks like my little sister and my ex-boyfriend who, like, treated me like shit. So, of course, my parents loved him. Mm. Um, and they didn't like my husband because my husband didn't treat me like shit which went against the narrative that they had told me my whole life about how unworthy of love I was okay. you know what I mean so they sailed in on him because you know he was going against the narrative mm. and so they treated him like shit too and so I scrolled and I'm like yeah they invited my ex-boyfriend to this family dinner that mm. I was supposed to be at with my husband and my two children had mm. my husband not been sick Mm. And it just was, like, everything kind of spiraled at that point because, like, I remember telling my husband and my husband being like, they're never going to love me, are they? Mm. And just, like, seeing the hurt in his face was in resonating so deeply with that feeling because that's how I felt my whole life. Mm. They're never going to love me. I'm never going to be good enough no matter what I do. Mm. And, um, yeah, so that was what I was just like, you know, God, I remember talking to God and being like, if this is what you require of me, like if sustaining this abuse and offering my children up for abuse is what you require of me, I'm just going to have to go to hell because mm-hmm. I'm already living it. So whatever, mm-hmm. like I just, I can't do this to my kids. And yeah, I severed um, ties. Of course, there's a whole lot more to the story. That's the condensed version. But yeah, I severed tie with, ties with them in 2013 and I have not looked back. And the peace that I have and the love that I have for myself, um, gosh, I would not trade it for anything. But I learned very quickly that removing 
my parents for my life did not remove the mindsets that they had instilled in me. Mm. Like, I still very much felt that self-distrust, that self-loathing, that inherent unworthiness because they had already abused me so much. Like, my inner critic was doing all the heavy lifting. Like, Mm. I was emotionally abusing myself at that point because I had been so conditioned to think about myself in a certain way. Mm. And so, yeah, that made the... That's why I embarked on the self-trust journey because I, I'm just like, I have to learn everything about myself all over again. Mm. Like realizing like some of the things that I thought I liked, I really didn't like. I just liked it because my parents said I needed to. Yeah. And it would be little things like food, you know, like mm. I'm a very picky eater and I grew up being forced to eat things that I did not like because of, you know, sensory things for me as an autistic and like realizing I don't have to eat those things. Like I don't have to force myself to eat stuff that I don't like just because. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah, that that distrust really ha- was rooted in so many different areas of my life that it's been a long process, but I'm still unlearning and just allowing myself to approach that with tons of grace just because you know Mm -hmm. I was a kid who was taught to be anything but who I truly am Mm -hmm. and that shit sticks with you it does absolutely oh my goodness okay um so let's talk about the fat phobia piece and then we're going to pivot into the pleasure piece yes so what is what has your journey been with fat phobia in church yes okay so I will say as I was younger like I was someone who danced competitively I was always in you know really great shape and so I didn't really sustain a lot of the fat phobia piece that much then it was more so just because I was athletic and you know I've always had a booty that like people would say, like, you're going to cause a man to fall if he wears shorts like that or tight because, you know, all that butt in them shorts, you know what I mean? Mm. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, I mean, it it is still a form of fat phobia because it was talking about my body and how, you know, thick and plump my butt was. Mm -hmm. But completely different than now where, you know, I had had a couple kids and put on weight and just how many people look at you sideways in church when Mm. you're fat? Like the fact that there are books and entire ministries that are dedicated to preaching the message that if you're fat, it's because you love food more than you love God. Mm. And I remember getting one of those journals and deciding, you know, gosh, I can't even count how many lengths I said I was giving up sweets. Or how many lengths uh, I did the Daniel's the Daniel fast. Daniel fast. Yes. Yes. How many lengths? It was like, okay, this is what's going to jumpstart my journey to health. Mm. I'm using my quotes. Health, um, because everything that I have been taught equated health to skinny. Mm-hmm. Like everything was like you're unhealthy if you're if you're not skinny, and so so much fat phobia and being you know asked oh are you getting I forget who the author was but a big book was like made to crave 
and yes. I forget who the author was, but that was like a really big book in like mm-hmm. Christian women's circles who were trying to lose weight. It was like, oh, it's just because, you know, we're craving food more than we crave God. And like mm-hmm. basically saying like, you need to starve yourself and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, and I will say like, even at my youngest and even at my thinnest, I still thought I wasn't thin enough mm-hmm. because, you know, I... I'm built like a black chick. You know what I mean? You just built black. And yes. Yeah. And so it's like, I mean, I can work out all I all I want, but this this butt's gonna be big it's and gonna be big. my thighs gonna be juicy. Like I can't help that. So juicy. And I was, like I said, a competitive dancer at this point, and so I was hella active and I was dancing, you know, hour, two hours a day, and I was very fit. But I still thought it wasn't enough because I wasn't real thin mm. and because I had all this butt. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess, huh, maybe I'm just putting it together now that, like, yeah, fat phobia, even when I was thin, was still a, a big thing in my church experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and I remember the heaviest pregnancy that I had by then we had moved to it was basically a majority white church if I'm being real like there were some black families peppered into the crowd but it was mostly white families and um this was not too long ago because my youngest is she'll be five this year and I just remember being in my third trimester with her and like every day even if I was only like seven months People at every Sunday was asking me when the baby was due. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're ready to pop. And I, I, that's a whole other soapbox that I could be on about how, for some reason, people have deemed it societally acceptable to comment on pregnant women's bodies. Like, that's mm-hmm. just a thing that people do, which I think is so fucking insane. Like, mm-hmm. especially because there's typically so much, you know, body shame going on for the woman as her body is changing anyway since we live in such a fucking fat phobic country mm-hmm. um to then have people saying like you having a baby wait you do mm-hmm. like next week and it's like i feel not like two and a half months like i'm nowhere near having this baby oh. if i have this baby next week she won't be hella premature she won't have like, no lungs it's true she needs lungs oh my, mm-hmm. my gosh and so it was just like you know everybody feeling the need to comment on my body and me before I even got pregnant like deciding that I was going to embark on losing a shit ton of weight so that people would not comment on my body anymore mm-hmm. and then I got pregnant and I was like well I can't do that now like because she needs all of this all the nutrients and stuff and I can't be focused on trying to lose a bunch of weight while I'm pregnant which no pregnant woman should have to worry about that right no pregnant right. woman should have to worry about how much weight she's getting when she's pregnant like just you're growing a person just do you it's yeah. fine but in church was where I was really hit with that message of like you getting big never mind the fact that you know I personally with each pregnancy have gotten bigger and so she was my my third and it was just like well yeah like my uterus already knows what it's doing at this point so it just expands earlier um but yeah just a bunch of bullshit of like oh you're not honoring god with your body your body is your temple Mm -hmm. and all that bullshit yeah 
I didn't realize, uh, I've never made a baby. Um, I try really hard to not make one right now because these dudes ain't shit. But um, the, I live here in China where people, like the women make babies because they're supposed to, because the government said they have to, like this is their role and there is no religion over here really. Um, and so they're doing this literally because their parents said so, like it's so, it's so sad. Um, yeah. But what I've noticed with talking about, oh, and the other thing is you, it's officially illegal to find out or to get the, to find out the gender or the sex of the baby before, like, so the doctor, oh. if they say congrats, it's a boy or congrats, it's a girl, that doctor will, could go to jail. So like, there's no, oh. it's wild because China's wild, but, um, but it's because they don't want like, uh, before, like there were too many, they were aborting the girls because girls are not liked. And so then you have to have the boy in order to carry on the name. So then once they realized that there were too many girl, too many boys, not enough girls, they were like, okay, nobody can know the gender until they push the baby. Like it's, it's a thing. Anyway, so um, I've noticed, like, with pregnant women, no one, like, bows down to them or, like, gives them extra space or, like, it's literally, like, I'm making a baby and that's it. So the women are still doing, living their regular life um, and it's wild to me. And then if you see one, no one's, like, touching their bellies or, like, wow, you're getting so big or... You know, they always ask, like, how's the baby? And the mom is like, yeah, the baby's fine. And then you keep on living your life. And I was like, wow, America does literally the opposite. <laughs> there's, just, there's so much attention. Um, and it's wild. So I've never made a baby yeah. before. But I definitely would not want to make one here. Um, but, like, the, I don't know, it's, it's complicated. Like, pregnancy is bizarre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's definitely it's definitely complicated yes oh yes so i'm curious about like when was when did you have a lint or a season when you're like okay i'm literally not going to give up sweets for this lint like did did that did you have one of those or like i'm not doing this anymore okay nope i didn't i did not stop observing lint until probably uh, 
the sweepstakes where you can win five cases, which is 60 boxes of cookies. Wow. And guess who won their local church? Are you serious? It was you? Yeah. Congratulations! 60 boxes. My kids are ecstatic. Like, it's, it's been a whole thing. And it's funny because we've entered every year since 2020. Mm-hmm. And so this year when we enter, my husband was like, we're not getting our hopes up. We never win. And mm-hmm. they called and said we won. And we were like, oh, snap. Where are you going to put all these cookies? <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. This is Christmas. Be. But every time I open my freezer and see the many, many boxes of thin mints in there, it's just like <sighs> it's heaven. What else do you need in it's life? Heaven. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's <sighs> awesome. Ah, that makes me so happy. Okay. Um so the connection between like fat phobia and not worthy of pleasure. Can you talk about like like is it like certain bodies only get pleasure and then yours didn't? Is that where? Yes. Okay. So it, it was kind of twofold, right? Because as a woman, I felt like my body was created for man's pleasure. And so I already felt like I had a reduced worthiness when it came to pleasure as a woman. Mm. And then like as a, a fat woman, as I, you know, began to gain weight, it was just kind of like, Okay, now they're in the in the like weight loss ministries. A, a prevalent theme would be you need to have your your body looking a certain way. You need to be fit. You need to be skinny so that your husband doesn't lose interest and cheat on you. Mm. You know what I mean? And so it very much became a okay. I know that I'm gaining this weight because I just had these this man's babies. But now I need to put all this pressure on myself to lose weight because I don't want him to then lose interest Mm. in me. And so it was still like even in my wanting to lose weight, it wasn't for me. Like nothing was ever for me, Mm -hmm. ever. And so I very much felt like my body was, since it was fat, a hindrance to not just my pleasure but his pleasure because it's like, Will he want me if I'm fat? Mind you, none of this came from my husband. Mm. Like, none of it. It was very much just what I had interpreted from the church and what other Christian women were telling me about. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if you don't lose weight, your husband's going to start looking at porn. Mm. And, da, 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 da. And, it, and so I just, I felt that pressure of like, okay. And then very much like, well, well, if he doesn't want me because I'm fat, then I'm unworthy of pleasure because... I was taught that pleasure was a gift that other people gave me, mm. not something that I could give myself, not something that I was inherently worthy of. Mm. And so if in, you know, giving him my body for his pleasure, I got a little pleasure, then, you know, mm. my pleasure was secondary. That mm. wasn't the point. Yeah. That's so disrespectful. My God. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm so happy that I grew out of that because, again, on my self-trust journey, like, so much of self-trust has to deal with embodiment and trusting your urges and trusting, you know, how your body feels and reacts to a certain situation. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, 
because of the environment that I grew up in with my parents at home and pastors from the pulpit teaching me that I could not trust myself because my humanity is what doomed me to hell. I was afraid of my body because my body was this agent that could cause people to go to hell, including me. Mm. And so once I started really working on self-trust and embodiment, it's like, how can I trust my body's sensations? How can I trust my body if I'm afraid of it? Mm. And how my self-trust very quickly kind of segued into self-pleasure because, you know, masturbation was something that I tried a couple times on myself in this journey and felt like that was cheating, right? Mm. That was cheating. Yeah. I'm not being truly celibate because, mm. you know, I'm still engaging in self-pleasure, which was very much talked down um, about in the church. And, you know, you're not supposed to be pleasuring yourself either. Mm. So just, again, shit ton of shame. But in really working on my self-trust and learning to trust my body and learning to trust that, like, my fatness is not a moral failing and that my body, no matter what size it is, is worthy of pleasure. Like, I will never forget when I bought my first vibrator mm. and being like, oh, this uh, this is amazing. Like, I'm going to wear this battery out, mm. okay? Yes. And, <laughs> and it being something, like, but it's for me, it wasn't because, you know, my husband and I don't have a, a great sex life. Like, that is something completely secondary. Like, I can give myself pleasure. I don't need him for that. I, While I cherish the pleasure that I do get in our, you know, sessions together, like, being able to then give and gift myself pleasure has been a big part mm-hmm. of self-trust and listening to my body and honoring my body. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it's not really talked about enough in embodiment. Like there are some who talk about, you know, self pleasure as far as embodiment is concerned. But yeah, it's, that's a big thing. Like touch yourself. It's fine. Touch it's yourself. okay. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> orgasms are great. Orgasms are self care. Mm-hmm. Like do it. It's it's fine. But when you have been raised and it's been drilled into your head that, you know, any kind of pleasure outside of marital pleasure, any kind of pleasure that is not with the express purpose of giving a man pleasure as mm-hmm. a woman, that it it's a dirty thing, that mm-hmm. it's bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to break free of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yes. My God. Um, so over here, um, for the local Chinese women uh vibrators like you know you have a credit score so you have a social credit score which is like if you if you're a social nuisance then your score will go down i don't know what happens if it goes down nobody officially knows but if a woman buys a vibrator their social credit score will get go down a little bit what right like i know so i it, it was wild. Oh, God. China is amazing. But I don't know why, but that's just what they do. The other thing that I was thinking about was um, over here, everyone is so small. And I'm thick. Like, I'm, I'm a black woman. I have a black body. And um, countless women come up to me all the time. And they're like, my husband, he's going to go away because I, I, I gained some weight. And my little assist my assistant that works here she's young and you know she's chub she's chubby for chinese she's big she's a bigger girl and i was like look i don't know how much you want to know but like dudes like the chub chub they like it to jiggle they love it and she's like no they don't they want sticks and i was like no they don't they want the booty they want it all 
And I didn't realize from in my journey of becoming sexually active and becoming a hoe, like um, I, it took several partners for me to officially learn that like my body was desirable being bigger because I thought that I had to be a stick. And then when the dudes would be like, oh no, please, I like it. And I was like, are you sure? They're like, absolutely. <laughs> had no idea. Had no idea. Because nobody taught me that. They said that I had to be small and I was working so hard to lose weight. And then I was like, but my body can run and I can play and I could have sex. Like, why do I need to be a stick? And I like it. I look great. Yeah. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So, yes, I'm all. That's I'm, so awesome. I'm, I'm so glad you learned that too. Because, yes, that is absolutely between the church and, you know, white supremacy and Eurocentric body standards. Like, we are forever being told that we need to literally and figuratively shrink ourselves to really? be worthy. Yeah. And so, yeah, learning the lesson, like, and that was a lesson for me to learn too, because. Here I am, all in my feelings, in my head, being like, oh, I've gained weight. My husband's not going to want me. It was the same situation where, like, my husband could not keep his hands off me. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, but is he doing it out of pity? No. Like, he enjoys my curves mm-hmm. and my jiggle. And so, allowing myself to, you know, free myself of that. And I, I have taken up, like, exercise this year. But it has been amazing being able to exercise without shame, without mm-hmm. it being like this exercise is merely a punishment for my body being this size and I need to shrink it mm-hmm. to like, I just want to feel fucking strong no matter what size I am. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's been, that's been awesome. That is and so like, I just, sorry, I'm going to go back to the Christian piece really quick again. I just feel like in a lot of contexts, pleasure is a sin because it's easier to control people in pain. Mm. It's so much easier to control people who are afraid of their humanity, who are afraid of who they are inherently. And so they will then look to other people Mm. for guidance, for, you know, defining who they are. Mm. And so, yeah, like once I really started to contend with the fact that sin is not a real thing, like, I'm not a sinner. I'm a human doing human shit. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, just the freedom that that, that that brought has been just life-changing. Oh, really. yes. Oh, gosh. Okay, can you speak more about, like, the embodiment piece? Um, it is kind of like a trending thing on the Instagram. People are always talking about being embodied. And then uh, my one favorite person, Hillary McBride, Dr. Hillary McBride, she wrote the new book, wisdom of my body or something uh she's talking about embodiment so like what what is this and like how does it affect someone's view of themselves their own sexuality how they connect with their bodies so on a on a really basic level embodiment is really just being in communion with your body so Mm -hmm. i know i hear about it a lot in terms of um, trauma survivors because our trauma is stored in our bodies but their trauma has also created a disconnect to where our minds and our bodies are misaligned if that mm-hmm. makes sense and so 
the work of embodiment, as far as I'm concerned, is really just being able to drop into your body. And since I do inner child work too, um, I think embodiment's important because kids ain't trying to intellectualize their feelings. Literally. And they feel things with their whole self. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If they're angry, they throwing themselves out. You know what I mean? They're not sitting here like, hmm, why do I feel this way? And trying to mm-hmm. put definitions and restrictions on it. And so as far as I'm concerned, you know, a lot of people talk about embodiment in different ways. But for me, it's really just having that communion between your whole self dropping into your body um, and really being able to trust your urges, really being able to trust your body wisdom. Mm-hmm. So for me, one way this came up for me was <clears throat> as I really started to pinpoint my body's reaction to being around my parents, you know, I would always, before I was meeting them, I would have like a days long stomach ache. Mm. I would have like chest palpitations and stuff that I was not really attributing to my trauma and to the anxiety of getting ready to see them. Once I really became clear with the signals that my body was sending me, I realized that it reacted that way to other people too Mm. who were in my life. Mm. And so it really became like aware to me that because I had been, you know, conditioned as someone who was an abuse survivor to be abused, Mm. then my parents weren't the only people in my life who were abusing me. Mm. And so being able to trust my body's wisdom and listen to what my body was trying to tell me in those situations, like, helped so much because I would try to talk myself out of it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But your your body don't lie. Like your body feels what it feels and it's gonna feel what it feels whether you think about it or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's why embodiment I think is really important, especially for us who are like purity culture dropouts, because we have been taught to not trust our bodies. We have been taught that our bodies are, you know, gonna send us to hell and are these terrible things. Mm. and that's so not true it's bullshit yeah oh gosh so much okay so let me look (laughs) at my little list thing um i think we covered all the pieces wow we did it this is amazing okay um can you give like a plug for like um if people this resonates with people and they want to work with you like what are you offering like how can people journey with you and be coached by you? like what 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 is your yeah. expertise so as i mentioned at the beginning you know i'm a self-trust coach specifically for bipoc women in films i do not work with men i do not work with white women I, only people of color only melanin for me sorry mm-hmm. sorry not sorry. Um, yeah. and so i work specifically with you know trauma survivors cycle breakers um, to help build their self-trust and self-compassion because just as we've been taught not to trust ourselves, we've been taught to hate ourselves and mm-hmm. to treat ourselves harshly. And so I, you know, work as far as perfectionism and people-pleasing and trying to prove yourself, which are big things when you have abusive parents. And so the one main offering that I offer is called Inner Trust Ball, and it is a six-month one-on-one coaching program. You know, when you think of a traditional trust ball, it's, you know, a trust-building exercise between one or more people where you have to, 
you're blindfolded and you have to trust that the other person is going to catch you, right? Mm -hmm. And so for inner trust fall, it's that way, but you are basically surrendering who you've been pretending to be Mm -hmm. to who you truly are Mm -hmm. and trusting that your true self and your inner child can work in communion to catch you. And um, so we also have like inner child play dates. I am really big on play. And so that's what it's about. It's about self-love, self-compassion, self-trust, but from like a playful lens. Like because Mm. drama, drama, (laughs) trauma is hard. Like Mm. trauma is so fucking painful. And the healing process is so messy. Like we need to add some levity to it. And so um, the other thing that I offer are one hour um, inner child play dates. We play with bubbles, you know, we play with slime, whatever it is. We sing at the top of our lungs to the Disney children's songs. Like, yeah. hell yeah. So, like, you know, whatever it is that your inner child is desiring in that moment, um, we can do it for, you know, that one hour. Um, and then, like I said, in my six-month program, each month we have one inner child play date because mm. it's about play and it's about, you know, your inherent worthiness and, Mm-hmm. as someone who has been taught you know as a black woman you know a woman of color in general that things can't be easy things can't be simple you know mm-hmm. things are so hard for us just allowing yourself to be in a space where you can just breathe mm-hmm. and allow things to be easy and focus on you which a lot of us were not raised to inherently do mm-hmm. um so yes if you fuck with the same shit i would love to to work with you obviously if this podcast has not been any indication i cuss a lot so if you are (laughs) someone who is sensitive to that um probably not the best idea because i do not mask i do not mask and i do not water myself down nope not anymore i've done a lifetime of that shit it's not happening yes but again if you do fuck with that i'd love to work with you Ah, i love (laughs) it okay so before we close today um oh I have two more things. What is okay. for people who don't know? What is what is femme? Oh yeah. So I don't want to just say you know women because I definitely want to include people who are non-binary, non-binary, mm-hmm. which is why I also don't identify as bisexual anymore because there are more than two genders. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are someone who you know is non-binary and you just present you know feminine energy you are someone who is femme um you can absolutely okay work with me got it okay just wanted to be clear and then also uh oh so before we close today um are there things that you forgot to say that you want to say real quick or um i said this and it's really important so i want to say it again or did you get everything off your chest and you're like i'm good I think the only other thing that I would really reiterate just because it's important from a Christian standpoint is that what I said before of pleasure being sin in that context because it's easier to control people who are in pain. Mm. If you are, you know, pleasure is empowering. Mm. So if you are taking the time and being intentional about making sure that you tend to your pleasure, right? It's not, like I said, 
a gift that someone gives you. It's something that you can give yourself. Mm-hmm. If you are being in that embodied, empowered energy, it's a lot fucking harder for people to take advantage of you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? If you are tending to your needs, you're not looking to other people to tend to it for you. Mm-hmm. And so that deals a lot with that people-pleasing piece. Um, and so I just think that's very important. Um, touch yourself. Whether you're using your fingers or a vibrator, just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yes. do it. Um, happiness is fleeting. So are orgasms. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to try to pursue both. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, yes, that's that's very important. Ah, so many nuggets. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing today. This has been a Thank wonderful so conversation. <sighs> Tia, thank you for sharing your host story with us today. I'm so grateful for your voice and also for your work. I am always so uh, inspired is just such an overused word, but I um, learn so much from people who um, have survived and are figuring out ways to thrive um, after trauma um, in their childhood and also in their adult life. And I'm grateful that you are able to share that with people. Um, so thank you for that. For those of you who are listening, please support and find her work on the internet. And that is at Hell Mystery, A-T-L-M-I-S-T-R-Y-C-O on Instagram. Also come support my work and share your host story on a future episode. And you can find me at Holy Coitus, A-T-A-U-X-L-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S. Find pictures of her, of our guest on um, Instagram and also on my website. And also check out the other um, host stories that I have recorded. Each and every one of them are fantastic. So enjoy your day, drink your water, have tons of orgasms, uh, be kind to yourself, sleep as much as you can, and don't ever apologize for any and all of the above. Until next time, y'all. Bye-bye.